Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 16, where we're finally at a passage I've been looking forward to for a long time. One of the better known and very fascinating, unique parables in the Bible, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Monty Real, the Washington Post, writes of a $70 million bank robbery in Argentina. Quote, the hostage standoff was stretching into its seventh hour with hundreds of police officers surrounding the bank after negotiating a peculiar swap for hostages for some pizza and sodas. The captors inside seem suspiciously quiet. So the police stormed the building. They found the 19 remaining hostages safe and sound, but the captors had vanished. A hole in the basement wall was covered with an iron lid that had been bolted shut from the other side. Later, police discovered that the hole led to a secret tunnel which hooked into a municipal drainage system that emptied into the La Plata River, and it was a clean getaway. Now, there's nothing probably more shocking, more tragic, more life-shaking than to all of a sudden realize you've been conned, swindled, robbed out of your stuff. Especially when you've entrusted it to somebody that you think is going to do you good. We've all heard about the great banking scandals and Ponzi schemes and insurance company frauds and stings that have left victims baffled, baffled. And even after it's over and they realize they've lost their stuff, a lot of times they still can't figure out how they lost it. It's just gone. And uh, that's the way it is. They were pillaged unaware. They've lost their treasure, their possessions, their money, and it's never to be retrieved again. And that's just the way it is. As tragic as that may be, losing your life savings or your house or whatever to some con artist, there is a great deceiver, a great con artist That serpent of old, Satan, the devil, the liar, the murderer, the accuser of the brethren, Satan who is out to con you out of eternal life. That is his great con. He does it in a lot of ways. Some very subtle and very tricky. But he's good at it. I mean, just picture in your mind the successful businessman. He's he's young, he's strong, he's handsome. He's got the degree from that prestigious college and has that high-paying job and the good-looking wife and the house on the hill and the sports car. I mean, he seems to just have everything going for him. He and his wife work out a lot to keep their bodies in shape and they are careful about what they eat and they work hard and they play hard and they're disciplined to advance themselves. They're always studying, don't watch too much TV, advancing themselves, advancing their knowledge, their skill. They go on exotic trips to places around the world and eat at fancy restaurants and they have enough self-control not to destroy themselves with their success. Their marriage is good and their relationship is tight and their future is bright or so they think. And they are the envy of the American dream. I mean, that's what the world sells us, right? I mean, isn't that what's going on out there? That's, that's what, you know, you need to become like. Everybody needs to have that. You know, everybody needs to strive for that. That is the ultimate good, the world says. And they're agnostics. They don't really know what's going to happen after death. If you were to ask them, they aren't quite sure. You know, there's so many religions and philosophies out there. Who knows which one is true? And surely uh, one's probably true. Maybe not. I just don't know. But they reason themselves, you know, if there is a God and there is a heaven, surely I'm going there. I mean, I haven't murdered anybody. I've been a pretty good person. I've worked hard for what I have. And I think my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. And if there is a heaven, I'm going there. Periodically, they have thoughts of hell, but not too often because those thoughts scare them. 
So they kind of push them to kind of this area of their mind uh, relegated to myth and, uh, and uh, fantasy fiction. And they know in their heart that they're not living for God. And so thoughts of hell kind of scare them because if there is a God, they're not doing anything for him. Though comparatively in society, they're doing quite well. If they do think of hell, they remind themselves that God is a God of love. I mean, everybody knows that he's a God of love. And uh, they're pretty sure the Bible even says that someplace. And so they kind of place their eternity in the category of wishful thinking. And they hope that someday when they die, but they don't want to think about that either, that things will work out well. The truth is they're being conned. They're being sold swampland by Satan. They have no idea that they are victims of a great con which is designed to destroy them. They think they're actually in control of their lives when they're held captive by Satan to do his will. They think they can make their own choices, but they're slavery to sin and their real master, Satan. And death will come upon them sooner or later like a robber and it will steal away all they have in a moment. And they'll never have any good again forever. And in hell they will ask themselves, how did I end up here? How did I get here? They won't ever figure it out because they're spiritually dead. Of course, they'll come to grips with some things like, of course, there is a God. How could I be so foolish to think that there might not be a God? And of course, there is a life after this life here on earth. And of course, there is a heaven. And of course, there is a hell. Here I am. But they will never receive mercy again, though they will want it. They will never receive grace again, though they will want it. They will never be able to change their destiny, though they will desperately want it. You see, all of their days on earth, they wanted God out of their lives, tried not to think about him, tried not to live for him. They just wanted to live a godless life. And now they're finally getting what they wanted all along. God out of their life for eternity. Jesus asked in Mark 6:36 or 8:36, "For what does it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world and yet forfeit its soul?" To get the whole world and forfeit your soul. Well, this morning we are going to find out from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke 16:19 through 31. This is such a great parable because it addresses so many different things. This morning, we're going to address one angle and in the weeks to come, a few other angles, just to, to try and extract from it some of the, just the abundance of truth that is here. I think if you've been here in our series of Luke, you probably remember that in these chapters, chapter 14 through um, 16, Luke has compiled quite a few stories and incidences, teachings of Jesus that have to do with money and possessions. And this is one of them. In Luke 14, 33, Jesus says, so none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Sounds pretty extreme, doesn't it? You can't even be my follower unless you give it all up. Well, it doesn't mean we have to take a vow of poverty, though some have interpreted it that way. Obviously, um, not all the godly people in the Bible gave up everything. Jesus is saying that when we come to him in faith, we need to put everything at his disposal. We need to be willing to walk away from it all if he asks. We need to have him be Lord even over of all of our wealth and possessions and skills and everything. Then in Luke 15, we learned about the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And oh, those were some great things, valuable things that are lost, searched after, and when found, they're rejoiced over. Then in the beginning of Luke 16, we have the parable, the unjust steward, more money issues. The, the guy's evil. He's wicked. He's misappropriating his master's fun. He's going to get kicked out on the street. And so while he still has time, while he's putting the books together to depart from his master's employment, he makes friends for himself by the means of the mammon of unrighteousness. 
In other words, he reduces the bills of all the debtors so that they receive him while they are on earth. Jesus goes on to say, as Christians, we need to be at least as shrewd as the sons of darkness. And we need to use our resources to win friends who will receive us into eternal dwellings. That is, we need to use our resources for Christ. In Luke twelve forty eight, Jesus said, From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrust much of him, they will ask all the more. If you're given much, God expects more. We have this idea sometimes that, you know, God is kind of a percentage guy. It doesn't matter how much we have, we give a percentage. No, we give according to how God has blessed us. You make more, you give more, percentage-wise. Not just numbers-wise. Now we're going to look at this parable. I'm going to read it. And it's going to be have some scary parts and some good parts in it. And we're going to spend some weeks looking at it. So follow along as I read Luke 16, 19 through 31. Now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate and covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which are falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life, You received your good things, likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between you, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that they may warn them so they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, They will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. The parable has many things to teach us. This morning I want to focus on this whole principle concerning the great reversal that we see between this life and the life to come. That great reversal that everyone will experience at death so that we are not deceived and die and end up in hell. And if we know Christ so that we maintain our hope and don't despair while we're waiting for glory to arrive. Now, just a little bit of background. Some have argued that this isn't even a parable. Um, this is kind of myth that there were Jewish myths and Greek myths. And Jesus kind of took some of those Jewish and Greek myths and kind of compiled them together. And um, that they don't that, that this really isn't uh, anything that's kind of factual. The things talking about after death aren't really true. The, there's a there's a big principle about the proper use of money, but that's it. And we shouldn't rely on these other things. Other people say, well, it isn't a parable because Jesus names Lazarus uh, by name. And he doesn't do that in any other parable. But of course, there is no rule that says you cannot use a proper name in a parable that Jesus had to like submit to. And granted, that feature is unique. Some have said that the the parable is really not a parable. It's a true to life story. This is talking about Lazarus of Bethany. And what happened to him after he died and he came back and told Jesus his experience. But that is highly unlikely. And it's true that the main purpose of the parable is not to teach about the afterlife. But the whole definition of a parable is that it is a true to life story. In other words, if you have a parable, a parable is a story that could really happen in real life. It's not science fiction it's not fantasy fiction it's fiction but it's true to life 
And I refuse to believe that Jesus would use a myth that taught lies about the future to tell us some spiritual truth. That's highly unlikely. As Henry Ironside has written, we have no reason whatever to look upon this story as an imaginary incident which had no foundation in fact. So I just want you to know, I'm going to refer to it as a parable. I think it contains facts that all of it's true, both its statements about our use of wealth and its instruction about the afterlife. It's not Jewish or Greek myth. So our first lesson is this. We have two. The first is blessings in this life do not guarantee blessings in the life to come. Let's just look at this rich man and kind of get a little profile of his life because uh, we see what he is like in verse 19. Look there. Now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen and joylessly living in splendor every day. Now this that verse is loaded. And uh, it's more loaded the more you look at it. Notice the man is described as being rich. I mean, he is wealthy. And as we shall see, he's extremely wealthy. This guy is, you know, one of the top richest men in the world type of guys. Secondly, he is described as habitually dressed in purple. You say, well, so what's the deal with purple? Well, this is the deal with purple. In certain tropical waters, there is a predatory snail called a murex in the ocean. And if you take that snail and you break the shell and you open it up, there is a small little gland and it's full of this purple dye, a substance that can be used to dye clothing with. And it was the dye used to dye the robes of royalty. And you you can imagine how many snails you would have to you know they're down in the bottom of the ocean no scuba gear you're having to find these things you're having to open them up and you know take out your little teaspoon out of each one until you get enough to dye a robe with we're talking some really expensive stuff here this is what the man habitually wore king's clothing in other words he wore expensive purple every day which was a huge statement look how rich i am i mean this is all i wear everything i wear is purple type of thing he was uh you know at the height of the fashion of that time thirdly we see that he was habitually dressed in fine linen and uh this also was very expensive it could be one of two different kinds of uh linen the word is actually uh could be used of this very fine linen that was brought up from egypt it was very soft it was cool it was very silky they used it for undergarments or it could be there was another um uh, material that was called sea silk that was actually made from these fibers of this bivalve muscle that grew on the rocks and when those muscles attached themselves to the rocks they had these little fibers or filled it feel and those feelers if you took them off and you could imagine doing this under the water getting all those fibers you could weave them together into this super silky smooth material so that's what he's wearing i mean you know he's got the armani suit you know he he's making the statement he is at the height of fashion and would fit right in with, you know, the elite of the Roman culture, even though he's a Jew. Fourthly, verse 19 says he was joyously living in splendor every day. So he's happy and he's living in just opulence and luxury, you know, kind of like, you know, the time of the French royalty before the French Revolution, where, you know, they would take almonds and coat them in chocolate. And then they would have artisans cover the almonds in gold leaf and just eat it and swallow the gold because it wouldn't hurt them. And it looked cool. And we're talking filthy rich is the the word that describes this man and this was his life on earth sadly this is what the world says all of us should strive for this is really a picture of the american dream if you could get to that place you could you would be happy the world tells you 
And there's a great danger, of course, in wealth, because as soon as you begin to get more wealth, the more it starts controlling you, the more you think about it, the more you worry about it, the more you want to accumulate. And there is just something about wealth that leads you away from trusting God and trusting in you and yourself and your bank account and your skills. And pretty soon you become proud and arrogant and peevish and you start looking down on other people because I'm, you know, a rich CEO and you're just a you know, hot dog cooker or whatever. I mean, we, we, we begin to think that wealth actually makes us more important than other people. And we see it all the time, uh, because the world caters to the rich as if they were more important, but they're not. And, you know, I just want you to know that Jesus isn't dissing rich people here. He doesn't have any problem with being rich. Being rich or being poor is not the issue in this parable. Because pretty soon, the rich man's going to die, and who's he going to run into? One of the richest men in the ancient Near Eastern world, Abraham. So, you know, there's rich people on both sides. There's poor people on both sides. That That's not the issue. We're going to address that in weeks to come. But... Uh, If you're out there and you have substantial means, praise God. I hope you get more substantial means. I hope you get past Bill Gates. But see, most of us um, see ourselves as not rich and somebody else who has more is rich. But, you know, compared to most of the people in the world, we all have a pretty good abundance. But we need to be careful when God starts blessing us not to fall in love with our stuff, our cars, our house, our clothing, our accumulation. You know, when you start buying stuff just to buy stuff and and buy more clothing and buy more clothing or more tools or more whatever it is, it's stuff that gets to accumulate and then you got to get rid of it so you can buy more and buy more. There should be something in your mind that says, maybe I should give this to starving people somewhere in the world. Maybe I should give this to the ministry. Maybe I should give this to something for eternity rather than just sucking it up myself. In Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, God says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Notice, God says, you may be powerful, you may be mighty, you may be wise, you may be rich. But don't boast about those things because I gave you those things. You want something to boast about? It's I know God. So if you are super wealthy... Your thought of thanks, your thought of praise, that consuming thought in your mind should be, I know God. I know God. And when all of this has failed, I know God, I'm saved, I'm on my way to heaven. That is the whole point. That's what God wants for all of us, whether we're rich or poor. Not look at my car and look at my portfolio or my investments But look at my God. There's one more hint of the rich man's opulence in verse 20. It's pretty subtle. It says, and the poor man named uh, Lazarus was laid at his gate. Now, did you see it there? Probably not. Um, See that word gate there? When you do a little word search on that, that gate's a big gate. We're talking like the gates to Buckingham Palace type of gate. You know, like one of those huge southern plantations where there's these giant walls and these huge gates and you open them up and there's that long straight road and the big row of mature trees that are shading and there's a huge pillared mansion in the distance, that kind of gate. Huge gate leading to a palace or a mansion. So this guy is super wealthy. The rich man is rich and Lazarus is poor. The rich man has fine clothing. Lazarus is ragged, beggar, 
The rich man is joyful. Lazarus is suffering and miserable. The rich man is in splendor. Lazarus is suffers poverty. The rich man owns property. Lazarus owns nothing. The rich man lives in a mansion. Lazarus lives in the street. The rich man is sheltered. Lazarus is laid outside the gate. The rich man is well fed. Lazarus is starving for crumbs. The rich man is enjoying health. Lazarus is covered with sores. The rich man is mobile. Lazarus is an invalid. The rich man is clean and Lazarus is defiled because dogs are licking his sores. So you get to see the picture here. There is this rich man. And as far as the world is concerned, the guy's doing really well. He's he's got everything. He's joyful. He's happy. He's rich. He's healthy. He's well-fed. Just wonderful. But he's missing something. He's missing that one thing. That one thing which would make him rich indeed. That one thing which would bring him every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That one thing that if he had that one thing, he would be happy for an eternity. He's missing that one thing. He's missing a relationship with God. And this, in a spiritual sense, makes him impoverished. And he doesn't know, because he has so much wealth and so much power in the world system, he doesn't realize he is a a debtor to God, that the reason he has all of that riches, all of those riches are not because of him and not because his father gave them to him as an inheritance or anything else. He has all those things because God gave him those things. Proverbs 22.2 says, The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. In Deuteronomy 8.18, it says, The Lord is the one who gives us the power to make wealth. In Proverbs 10.22, it says, It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or whether you're poor. God is the maker of you. And the issue is not whether you're rich or whether you're poor. The issue is, are you living for God in his glory? That is it. Do you know Jesus Christ? Are you living for the glory of God with your little or with your great abundance? Be rich. Have a great abundance and make more so you can glorify God with it. Be poor. Be content with that. And live for the glory of God. That is the whole point here of this parable. God wants all of us to be merciful towards others and live for his glory. 1 John 3.17 says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And the Greek implies it doesn't. You have the world's good, you hold a brother in need, and you don't help that guy? God's love does not abide in you. James 2, 15 and 16, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace and be warm and filled and get off my lawn. It doesn't say that last part. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? And the implied answer, it is no use. You have a dead faith if your faith doesn't produce mercy towards other people. The word of God teaches us that we have no mercy. We have no relationship with God. Listen, the blessed person is not the person who has all the world's goods necessarily. You know, if you do, if you just look in Webster's and you look at the definition of blessed, you you find something interesting in there. You'll find that one definition is to enjoy pleasure and relief. And that's what the rich man had. That is the world's definition, to have pleasure and relief. But that's the third definition. The first definition and the second definition are the primary definitions of what it means to be blessed. And the first definition is to be holy. And the second definition is is to have favor and protection from God. So you see, in the parable, 
Who's blessed? The poor man at the gate. Who's cursed? The rich man. The wrath of God abides on that rich man. And he doesn't know it. He's conned. He's clueless to what's happening. God wants us to remember that being blessed is knowing him. I mean, listen, if I came up to you and I said, okay, see if you can figure this out. I'm going to give you a choice now. One minute of pleasure or an eternity of suffering or one minute of suffering and an eternity of pleasure. Which one you want? And then you think about it and you pray about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty obvious. See, I, th- I, think, I think I'll go for the one minute of suffering and the eternity of pleasure. And that is the rational, sane thing to do. But I am quite sure that some of you are choosing the other option. Your lives show that you're choosing the other option. Your checkbook shows it. Your passions show it. Your actions show it. Your words show it. Your choices show it. We look into your life. uh, Are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? Are you giving? Are you serving? Are you telling people about Jesus? You're like the rich man. You're enjoying the things of the world. You're calling yourself a Christian, right? But your greatest goal is is really to enjoy this life. You just want to be, have, have a good life here. And that's it. That, that's where your thoughts are. You aren't thinking about future. You aren't thinking about eternity. You aren't thinking about down the road. And if that's you, I have some bad news for you to begin with and then some good news. You're cursed. I don't say that to be mean. I'm just trying to tell you what the text says here. I'm trying to tell you what the Bible says. I worry about people who can just come to church, but God never affects their life. Never controls what they do. The religious, you're lost. You're like the professing Christians in the church of Laodicea. You remember them? Revelation 3.17, because you have said, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked. Oh, they had plenty of earthly riches, but in a spiritual sense, they're poor, blind, wretched and naked. Why? Because they have no love of God. Earthly riches you can live without. You cannot live without true spiritual riches. Either in this world or the world to come, you can't live without them. And you who are living for pleasure, who think that pleasure and things are your ultimate good, who focus your whole life around pursuing those things, you are lost. You are deceived. You're being conned. James speaks to you in James 5, 1 through 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like a fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up treasure for yourself. In other words, man was approaching the last days and Christ is about ready to come back. You're storing up stuff. Then he says, verse 4, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears. The Lord of the Sabbath, that is the Lord of the hosts, the armies of heaven. You have lived luxuriously in the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Listen. If you're enslaved by riches, you need to turn to Christ. You need to ask Christ to save you, change you, do whatever it takes to make you a lover of God. Trust in Christ as your Savior. Trust that he died on the cross for your sins. See yourself as poor and miserable and wretched and blind and just say, Lord, the world has me. Rescue me and he will change your heart. He will cause you to be born again and he'll help you have that eternal perspective so that though you may have lots of things and though you may still be wealthy here on earth, yet you're going to be using those things for eternity and not just hoarding them for yourself and for the fire to come. Let's just say you're an antique collector and you, 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 
you specialize in rare vases. And one day you're looking through the paper and you always look through the antique sections because you like antiques. And all of a sudden you see this one special vase that you thought, oh, oh, there it is. That vase I've always wanted. And so you call, quickly call up the man. Do you still have the vase? Yes. Can I come over? Yes. When? All right. Now it's fine. Okay. I'll be over. You get the directions. You go over to the guy's house. You come in and go, can I see it? Sure. And he takes it out of a box and he sets it on the table. And it's like, oh, I've been wanting this for my collection forever. He goes, well, it's a pretty steep price tag. He says, I paid a lot for it, but I need the money. So I'm selling it. Do you mind if I look at it? Sure. So you pull out your magnifying glass and you begin to look at the glazing and the artwork and the colors. You pull out a scale and he says, what are you doing? I'm weighing it. And you put it on the scale. And then you bring out some photographs and you begin to look at them and look at the sums of these seals and you turn upside down and you look at the seal and you compare it. And he can tell by the look in your face that you're not too pleased. And he says, what's wrong? You say, well, it's a fake. What? It's a fake. It's a forgery. No, it's not. I paid thousands of dollars for this thing. This is like my whole retirement is in this vase. Sorry. It's a fake. Well, how do you know? Because on closer examination, you can see in the artwork and the glazing and the colors and its weight and the seal that it's a very good but cheap imitation. And it's not worth anything what you're asking for it. You know, this is how many Christians are in their life, just like that. I'm a Christian, I go to church, and when you look at them from a distance, they look fine. They, 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 they appear to be fine. But then if you get up closer with the magnifying glass of God's word and you look at their life and you weigh them in the balance of scripture and you see how their devotions are, how their prayer life is, how how their passion is for the loss and the things of God and serving in the church and doing those things that all Christians do. They are weighed in the balances and found wanting And just as you wouldn't pay top dollar for a fake vase, so God doesn't accept those people into heaven. He begins a good work in every Christian. And though we not, we are not perfect yet, when we have the Holy Spirit in us, when we are born again, when we've repented of our sins, God begins to do a work in us and he never lets us go. He who begins a work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He who predestined us, these he also glorifies he sanctifies he brings us through that process he does it and so when you look at your life and you're realizing listen i i'm not the genuine thing then go to jesus go to christ just ask him to save you admit it and don't let thoughts of well what if somebody finds out i wasn't a christian they're gonna be praising god that you finally became one Don't let Satan give you the, oh, yeah, they'll know you were a hypocrite. Well, you are. Just admit it now and carry on. Go to heaven. Love Jesus. Be born again. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But don't be like the rich man and think that because you have luxury, because you are surrounded with pleasure and ease in this life, you're going to have it in the life to come. No, not necessarily so. Secondly, Suffering in this life does not guarantee suffering in the life to come. Now we have a different person. Look at verse 20 and 21, where we are given the profile of the very wretched man, Lazarus. The text says, and a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which are falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. What do we learn here? A bunch of things. Just just follow this with me. He was poor, abject poverty, had nothing. He was poor. Secondly, he was a beggar by profession. 
That's all he could do. All he could do is be sickly and beg. Three, he was an invalid. How do you know that? Because he was laid at the gate. He couldn't even walk there. Four, he was friendless. You say, well, how do you know that? Because that little word there, laid at the gate, is really to be cast or thrown down. Now think about this. If you had a friend who was an invalid, would you throw him down at the gate? No. He's friendless. You know, he probably compelled somebody, please, please take me someplace where I can beg. It's like, okay, pal, come here. Grab him, throw him in your cart. I'll drive you over to the rich man's house and plop you down in front of his gate. He's got plenty of money. I'm sure he'll throw you something. That's the whole idea. Didn't you have a friend on this earth? Five, he was covered with sores. The Greek indicates oozing open, putrid, infected sores. Six, he was, according to verse 21, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling for the rich man's table. At that time, the rich, you know, uh, people ate with their hands back then. So you could imagine sitting down to a feast and you're eating everything with your hands. You get kind of sticky, especially if you're eating like barbecued ribs. And uh, so, so what do you do? You know, well, you don't wipe it off in your clothes, especially if you're wearing purple. So what do you do? Well, they actually had bread on the table for that very purpose. You would tear some of the bread out and you would kind of hold your hands under the table and wipe off, use the bread to wipe the greasy nasties off of your hands. And that was kind of your napkin. The crumbs would fall on the floor and later on you'd throw the bread chunks under the floor. You wouldn't eat them. And the servants would come and sweep it up. Or if you had a dog, the dog would be under there mowing under the table. And so the poor man Lazarus isn't isn't looking for the scraps. He doesn't want the leftovers. He just wants the crumbs that are falling down. Seven, we know he's wretched because the dogs are licking his sores. This tells us he had no strength. He couldn't even shoo the dogs away. I mean, dogs were considered unclean, and so no Jew would have a dog lick them. Eight, he was barely clothed. Well, how do you know that? Well, because the dogs are able to lick his sores. I mean, he didn't have an undergarment and a tunic on, which would have covered him up, and so he's basically laying out there naked. Nine, he was tormented by his circumstances. Well, how do you know that? Well, think about it. He's an invalid. He's sick. He's starving. He's laying in front of the gate and he has to watch all the friends, the rich friends and the rich man go in and out of his estate and they keep ignoring him and ignoring him day after day as he suffers at that gate, as he's shamed at that gate because he can't do anything. He can't help himself. He's totally dependent on other people and he can't do anything. So he was tormented by his inability and shame that the rich man would pay no attention to him. And I just want to speak to you who are suffering right now because a lot of Christians, when they suffer, they think to themselves, why is this happening to me? You ever wonder like that? Lazarus is the blessed man. Lazarus gets to heaven, remember? And look at his circumstances. You say, well, why is that? I mean, some of you are growing old and your body's falling apart and you're thinking, Lord, why is that? Well, it happens to everybody if you get to live that long. Other of you have had accidents and you're suffering because of that. Other of you are racked with different diseases and sicknesses and you're thinking, oh, Lord, why is that? And then you're surrounded by family members and, you know, maybe who are trying to make your life miserable. It just seems like some Christians just live in families and it seems like the goal of everybody in the family is to like hate them. Or maybe you are suffering financially and you can't find a job and you want to get a job and you're looking to get a job, but there's no jobs we found. No one's hiring. And you're worrying about your wife and your children and paying the bills and maintaining your testimony before other people. You're falling further into debt. Every door seems closed. Maybe you're entangled in sin and maybe you just can't stop. You want to just stop. You would love to just look back and say, I came to a stop, not even progress far. If I could just stop. 
It would be so great. And yet the sin keeps coming back and you've beseeched the Lord three times and it hasn't gone away just like Paul. But you've placed your faith in Christ and you're hanging on. Well, keep hanging on. Know that there is a great reversal coming for you. No matter how much you suffer in this life, no matter how much you have to go through in this life, whatever God gives you, it comes from his hand and it comes from his hand for a good purpose in your life. I've seen people go through this interesting stage. I've seen it over and over again. Somebody is, you know, all of a sudden discovers they're sick. They're in the hospital and they know, yeah, I go visit them, pray for them. And yeah, I just you know want to get back to work and get back to my yard and my hobbies and my kids and my family. And, you know, you kind of want to do that. And then they're still in the hospital and things aren't going well. And the doctors are practicing medicine on them and only practicing. No curing. And after a time, you just realize, I'm not getting better. I'm getting worse. And you know, and and you kind of come into that situation and it's kind of obvious to everybody. It's kind of like this big elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about. But you realize the person's going down. They're facing eternity. And then I see something great happen in their life. And this is what's neat about visiting people in the hospital. And my, by the way, every one of you can do it. You don't need to be like ordained or anything. You just need to like make a little effort. You go in and here's this person. They're heading towards eternity. And you may think, oh, I have to stop. And it's going to take up my lunch hour. or You know, it, it's inconvenient and I'm tired or whatever. You go there and this is what happens. You get blessed. Do you know why? Because that person begins to realize something. I'm tired of needles, tests, probings, pokings, pressure cuffs on my arm 10 times a night. I'm tired of hurting. I I don't care about food anymore. I don't care about my favorite TV shows. I don't want to look at the shopping ads in the Sunday paper anymore. I want to be with Jesus. And all of a sudden, they, they come to this place where they realize, I just want to be with the Lord. And you're going, I like that. I, li- I want that. Where all the things that have kind of distracted them, all of a sudden they realize, what am I doing? I need Jesus, man. I'm ready to go to heaven. And all of a sudden now... Their whole attitude has changed and you realize and they realize that God has sent me this trial to free me from worldly concerns and to prepare me for glory. As Thomas Watson said, death stops the bottle of tears and opens the gate of paradise because the believer's dying day is his ascension day to glory. That no matter how much you're suffering, the moment you die, everything gets really good. All at once, forever. And this is some of the blessings of suffering. And a lot of times we don't see it. You know, the rich man had no angelic escort, but Lazarus did. The rich man woke up in hell, Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. The rich man was in torment, Lazarus was enjoying pleasure. The rich man sees what he wants, Lazarus has what he wants. The rich man seeks mercy and gets none, Lazarus has mercy evermore. The rich man seeks relief and gets none, Lazarus is at peace. The rich man is in agony, Lazarus is in comfort. All good is past From the rich man forever, all good is just beginning for Lazarus forever. The rich man received all the good that he would ever receive in this life only. Lazarus received all the suffering he would ever receive in this life only. The rich man can't leave hell for heaven. Lazarus can't leave heaven for hell. The rich man is ever regretful. Lazarus is always rejoicing. The rich man has all his requests denied and Lazarus has all his requests granted. 
the great reversal. It's coming for everybody who knows Christ, rich or poor. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will experience a great reversal. And as Paul says in Romans 8, the the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to the saints. Not worthy. Don't you dare do it. J.C. Ryle writes, most people eat and drink and talk and plan as if they were going to live forever. The true Christian must be in his guard against this spirit. He that would live well, said a great divine, should often think of his last day and make it his company keeper. There are a few better antidotes to grumbling, envy, and prideful possessions of wealth than thinking about death, end quote. You know why the monks used to have those uh, skulls on their desk? It wasn't because they were goth. And it wasn't because they were trying to be cool. They put a skull on their desk to remind them that they were going to die, that every day they were getting closer to dying, and then they'd have to face God. So that they would see in that skull a reminder that they were mortal that they would face their creator, that it was appointed for men to die once and they needed to use every moment of every day for the glory of God. We need to do the same. Maybe we ought to get a bunch of skulls and put them on our desk. <laughs> then people come in and go, what's that? Drop the bomb. <laughs> so as we look at this text, this is what I want you to do. I want you to examine your life and say, am I the rich man or am I Lazarus? Not am I rich or am I poor, but do I love God or do I not love God? Because he who loves God in this life is rich indeed. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the parable we have begun to look at. I pray that if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, that they would repent of their sins, that they would give their life to Jesus Christ, that they would ask you to save them, to change them, They would believe and trust in Christ alone and that you in doing that would rescue them from their own selves, from their own deception, from the great con they are entangled with. And for the rest of us who know you, may we use all that we have for your glory. And for those who are suffering, may they not lose hope because there is coming for all who know you a great reversal that will be glorious. We look forward to that and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.